You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com That is a... You know, I said that about a week ago. And I didn't like it that much. Didn't sound that great. And the whole world picked it up. So it shows you what I know. It's crazy. Drain the swamp. We're going to drain the swamp of Washington. We're going to have fun doing it. We're all doing it together. It is funny. Funny how things like that happen. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on the third day of February 2017. Welcome to episode 314 of The Corbett Report podcast, How Trump Filled the Swamp. And oh yes, we can still hear it ringing in our ears like it was just yesterday, the campaign promises by then-candidate for president, Donald Trump, to drain the swamp, drain the swamp. Yes, well, it certainly sounds like a good idea. And anyone who, for example, was listening to episode 312 of this podcast, Obama, A Legacy of Ashes, will know just how desperately that swamp is in need of a good draining. Uh, But people who were watching that or listening to that particular episode of the podcast will hopefully have gleaned another very important insight that we can take away from the Obama disaster, which is that it was not Barack Hussein Obama as an individual that was responsible individually for all of the ridiculous nonsense that went on during the Obama era. In fact, Obama, like all of the presidents, is just a puppet dangled in front of our face to be the person that we can project our love and hope and aspirations or our hate and and venom upon so that they can be they can be paraded in front of us and taken away and paraded in front of us and taken away in that time-honored tradition by which the powers behind the throne have always ruled over the overt state. And in our era, of course, we are talking in the context of the deep state. And again, we don't have to speculate about that. This isn't conspiracy theorizing. We have actual hard documented evidence for that. I will once again refer you back to episode 312 so you can rewatch specifically the latter half of that, uh, that podcast for more detail. But do you remember the leaked email that we now have in our possession. You can go and read this email online that was sent from Mike Froman, then an executive at Citigroup, to John Podesta back in October of 2008. October 6th, to be precise, or over one month before the 2008 hope and change selection took place when millions of earnest Democrats were were vehemently arguing, oh, please, oh, you have to get out to the polls next month and vote for Obama, who will be the man who will bring the hope and change that we want, drain the swamp 2008, if you will. And now we know that more than one month before that selection took place and Obama was anointed the new president of the American empire, we know that Mike Froman of Citigroup was already writing emails to John Podesta picking 
Obama's cabinet. And it wasn't just suggestions. These were all of the people who ended up being in Obama's cabinet. He suggested Holder at the Injustice Department. He suggested Napolitano at Fatherland Security. He suggested Rahm Emanuel for Chief of Staff. He suggested Sibelius at HHS. He suggested Shinseki and and, uh, Arnie Duncan and all of these other people who got in. And of course... Mike Froman suggested three possibilities for Treasury Secretary, two Goldman uh, Bankster alumni, uh, Robert Rubin and Larry Summers, who both have intimate relations with uh, Democrat administrations in the past and destroying the uh, the uh, whatever semblance was uh, remained of, of the, uh, the banking industry that led to the 2008 crisis. And the other selection that he uh, offered the incoming administration before it was even voted in was Timothy Geithner. And of course, we know that ultimately the Obama administration appointed Timothy Geithner, the ex-head of the New York Federal Reserve, as Treasury Secretary. So, again, entire cabinet, front, front to back, top to bottom, picked in advance. Now... We don't have the leaked emails from the Trump campaign to know what uh, what conversations were taking place in the lead up to the selection of Trump as puppet in chief of the United States. So we don't have direct access to that evidence. All we can do at this point is take a look. Is he draining the swamp or is he appointing the same old cronies from the same old positions who are going to do the same old things? So how did he do? This is a Fox News alert. President-elect Donald Trump has had a busy day. Just moments ago, we learned he has selected a Treasury Secretary nominee. According to two sources, he is Steve Munchen, a banker, fundraiser, movie producer. Mr. Mnuchin has strong ties to Wall Street after a 17-year career at Goldman Sachs, where he pioneered block trading, the selling of big chunks of shares at once. This makes him a traditional pick for the job, but contrasts with Mr. Trump's message. Wall Street has caused tremendous problems for us. Mr. Mnuchin has given mostly Democrats in recent years. He gave the maximum amount to Mrs. Clinton's presidential primary bid in 2007. Then after her loss to Obama, he donated to the Obama campaign. When Mr. Mnuchin signed on to the Trump campaign, many of Hillary Clinton's major fundraisers were shocked. Mr. Mnuchin was born to a Jewish family in 1962, and his father also worked at Goldman Sachs. Well, that didn't take long, did it? But who's Steven Mnuchin? Is he a swamp dweller? Maybe he's one of the good banksters. And with the combination of extreme foreclosure tactics and a bailout from the FDIC, One West became a rainmaker for Mr. Mnuchin and his fellow investors. At precisely the same time the foreclosure machine was running, One West funds were poured into glamorous investments in Hollywood. In 2012, One West struck an agreement to loan hundreds of millions of dollars to a movie studio called Relativity Media. In 2014, while he was CEO of One West's holding company, Mr. Mnuchin bought his own stake in Relativity. He took a seat in the boardroom, was appointed co-chairman. He even bought a private jet with Relativity's co-founder. But the company quickly tanked. One West pulled out $50 million, emptying several Relativity accounts, including one earmarked for guild expenses that expanded wages for contractors and tradesmen. Mr. Mnuchin bailed out just before the studio declared bankruptcy. 
There have been press reports that the FBI has denied a Freedom of Information Act request concerning Relativity Media on the ground that disclosure is likely to interfere with a pending law enforcement proceeding. I have read the FBI background report on Mr. Mnuchin, and I saw no discussion of any such enforcement action in the report. That may be entirely appropriate, Mr. Chairman, I want to continue to work with you to find out what the enforcement proceeding cited in the Freedom of Information Act denial is and how it relates to the nominee, if it does at all. For Mr. Mnuchin, Relativity Media's failure wasn't a lot of a setback, considering the profits that One West foreclosure machine was still pulling in. The purchase price of the bank was less than $1.6 billion dollars. After five years of foreclosures and profits, it sold for $3.4 billion to CIT Group. Now, outside One West and Relativity, Mnuchin spent years as a director of the holding company for Sears, obviously an iconic American brand. He served on the committee that watchdogged the Employee Pension Fund. The record shows that that plan was routinely mismanaged and underfunded. Retirees saw their pensions cut, losing a monthly health care stipend that was enough to offset roughly a third of the premiums the seniors pay for Medicare Part B. Sears also shuttered hundreds of stores nationwide over the last few years and recently announced another round of closures. Once again, showing a truly impressive capacity to advantage himself while others fell behind. Mr. Mnuchin joined a small group of investors that spun off the company's real estate into a separate trust. It was arguably the most valuable asset Sears had left. So as retirees watched their pensions shrink and Sears' remaining workers worry about an uncertain future, this small number of powerful individuals made out just fine. Yeah, no, Swamp Dweller. Yes, it gets even more ludicrous, outrageous, outraging than that. The more you look into Mnuchin and his history, he is everything that the erstwhile Trump supporters and erstwhile Swamp Drainers would be railing against if it were not for their savior from on high, Donald Trump, having nominated him. Uh, Not only was he, of course, a Goldman Sachs banker, as has been noted, but also before that... You might have noticed he was a Yaley. <laughs> Guess what he was tapped into during his time at Yale? That's right, Skull and Bones. A Skull and Bones Yaley who worked as a Goldman Sachs banker. And then, guess where he went from there? Oh, <laughs> oh it gets even worse. Uh, reading from an article posted by Michael Krieger to LibertyBlitzkrieg.com on November 30th of last year, Uh, He's quoting a Wall Street Journal article that notes that uh, in 2002, Mr. Mnuchin left Goldman and later was hired to run a credit fund set up by billionaire George Soros. In 2004, Mr. Mnuchin and two former Goldman colleagues founded hedge hedge fund Dune Capital Management LP with financial backing from Mr. Soros. (laughs) Dune soon expanded into the entertainment business, striking a film financing deal with a unit of 21st Century Fox, blah, blah, blah. And then it goes on to talk about uh, his founding of what would go on to be called One West Bank. 
uh, during his management uh, or his takeover of of what was formerly IndyMac. Uh, that's a whole saga into itself. I'll put some links in the show notes if you want to explore that saga and some of the really shady dealings that went on. But I think I trust that that clip uh, of that exchange during his confirmation hearings in the Senate with uh, Senator Wyden at least gives you a window into some of the ridiculous shady practices that went on under Mnuchin's tenure at places like One West. What can you say? This is the swamp. This is the representation of the swamp. Goldman, Soros, Skull and Bones bankers are the swamp itself. And now yet another uh, insider has been tapped to head the Treasury Department. And unfortunately, it doesn't just end there, even if we're just talking about the financial side of things in the Trump administration. But to talk about the Mnuchin appointment and some of the other related financial appointments that are taking place uh, in the Trump administration and what that portends for the nature of the economy and the U.S. government's role in that under the Trump presidency, Last month, I had the chance to talk to Michael Krieger about his article. Number one, myself personally, there were things I I liked about Trump and there were things I hated about Trump. One of the things that concerned me the entire election was the fact that he never I never believed that he really didn't like Wall Street or had problems with the financial system. I thought a lot of that talk, specifically towards the end of the campaign, was Bannon, Steve Bannon driven and not what Trump really believed. And I wrote that. I mean, I wrote that on several occasions. So as someone that worked on Wall Street kind of knows how these people think, the evidence was not clear that Trump was opposed to the bankster rule. You know, it didn't didn't seem that way to me. Um, so that's number one. So so when you see a choice like Mnuchin, right, for me, it wasn't, oh, my goodness, you know, he's going against what he he said. To me, I never felt like he really had a thing against against the Wall Street parasites. I never felt he, he was strong on that. So so that's number one. Number two, I think people have to understand that the, the, the ideology, right? Everyone has this sort of worldview and ideology. And someone like Steve Mnuchin, people like this have an ideology. And, and it's ingrained. It's not like going to switch on a dime because he's with Trump. His ideology is money at all costs. Right. There's no thinking about the, the broader the broader citizenry. There's no it's it's is this a deal where I can make an, as an enormous amount of money by using cronyism and then foreclosing on Americans? It takes a certain individual to do that, particularly an individual whose father was a partner at Goldman Sachs, who was already a partner at Goldman Sachs, who has all this money. Right. Remember that, James. When you have a certain amount of money, you can go in a few directions. You can say, hey, I'm going to try to do some good with this money. Or you can say, I am just going to try to get more and more piles of money at all costs to feed my ego. Mnuchin seems to be in that camp. And a person with that kind of ideology is not the kind of person I want as Treasury Secretary. Okay, so we have confirmed swamp dweller Stephen Mnuchin tapped to head the Treasury Department in the Trump swamp. Well, are there any other examples that we can find of swamp dwellers dwelling in the Trump administration's financial swamp? Actually, the better question to ask, is there anybody associated with finance anywhere in the Trump White House who is not a swamp dweller? Because it seems every single pick that he's made has some sort of very shady connection to the banking underworld. For example, of course, the chief strategist uh, in the Trump White House, Steve Bannon, ex-Goldman Sachs, uh, the head of the SEC, Jay Clayton, ex-Goldman Sachs, the chair of President Trump's National Economic Council, Gary Cohn, not just 
Goldman Sachs, but in fact, the president and COO of Goldman Sachs, the number two man at Goldman Sachs, the number two banker right under Lloyd God's work Blankfein, slated to be the successor to Blankfein as CEO of Goldman Sachs, now the chair of the National Economic Council. Uh, we have Senior Counsel for Economic Initiatives in the Trump White House, Dina Habib Powell, ex-Goldman Sachs. Senior Advisor to the White House, Anthony Scaramucci, Goldman Sachs. Uh, who's the chair of the President's Strategic and Policy Forum, tasked with bringing jobs back to America and making America great again? Stephen Schwartzman, the CEO of Blackstone, where he'll be joined on that council, on that forum, by Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan, Larry Fink, and all sorts of other Wall Street uh, swamp dwellers. So there are there's plenty of swamp to go around in uh, terms of financial picks in the Trump White House. And for more on that uh, Goldman slash government connection, we did just talk to Carrie Wedler about an article that she wrote. Actually, Goldman Sachs hacked the presidential election, um, which is worth uh, listening to if you haven't yet done so. And there will be more to say in the coming days about Goldman slash government Sachs, much more. So please stay tuned to corporatereport.com for that. And I think Steve Bannon is an interesting character who probably deserves his own report entirely and probably will get one. So stay tuned for that as well. Um, But, okay, the financial side of things, not surprisingly for a billionaire-connected real estate New York mogul, clearly is going to be filled with Wall Street swamp creatures and no surprise there. Well, how about some of the other aspects of the Trump White House? Maybe there will be some good that we can find, say, in his national security-related picks, right? Well, have you noticed a commonality amongst some of these picks? You have General James Mattis and General John Kelly and General Mike Flynn. You know, it seems like there's a lot of military brass being appointed to head these civilian agencies, doesn't it? Well, Maybe it's not just your feeling, if that's what you've noticed. Uh, There actually is a preponderance of military brass being appointed to high-level White House uh, cabinet positions, and that's been picked up on by other people. For example, Kelly Vlahos of the AmericanConservative.com, who wrote a very important article that I'll direct your attention to called Is Civilian Control of the Military in Jeopardy?, which reads in part, quote, At question... General James Mattis, picked to head the the Department of Defense, who will need a congressional waiver to serve. General John Kelly, selected to head the Department of Homeland Security. And retired General Mike Flynn, chosen as Trump's national security advisor. Trump has also tapped Montana Republican Representative Ryan Zinke, a former Navy SEAL commander who served in the Iraq War for the position of Interior Secretary. Taken separately... Nearly all engender enthusiastic respect for their skills and intellectual capabilities, especially Mattis, who by all reports is well-loved in the military community, particularly by veterans who fought under him in Iraq. Outside, he is described as a man of a forthright nature who is well-read, a good listener, and more than capable of handling the leviathan bureaucracy that is the Pentagon. While Kelly evokes similar strains of confidence, there are rising questions over a retired four-star heading a domestic security post. And with Flynn comes a much cloudier picture. While he's viewed as a brilliant tactician, there are growing doubts about his temperament and fitness owing to his personal politics, as well as his reputation as an intelligence officer in Afghanistan and Iraq and as head of the Defense Intelligence Agency. Unlike the others, he does not have to be confirmed by the Senate." End quote. Some very interesting details in that article, so I hope you'll read through it. But I would add parenthetically when it comes to discussing people like Flynn, 
we can't dismiss the fact that he co-authored a book with Michael Ledine, the infamous neocon. So I think that deserves a, a great degree of scrutiny uh, when we're talking about Mike Flynn's temperament. And with General John Kelly, wouldn't you know who uh, he's associated with? Uh, this just came out, this just broke last month. General John Kelly, DHS nominee, has been quietly working for Dyncor. Yes, when he had to, when he was forced to uh, to reveal his financial disclosure form for, to the Office of Government Ethics, it turns out that his biggest uh, payroll from last year, the, the the vast majority of his income last year, came from Dyncor. Yes, that Dyncor. And if you don't know about Dyncor, I'll put a link in the show notes so that you can explore more about that child trafficking organization and the absolute crazy shadiness that it's been involved with. Um, and to have a DynCor, uh, someone on the DynCor payroll being appointed to head the DHS does not bode well, does it? Not at all. And so the very real question of military control over civilian agencies, what that means, what this, this trend means, is being raised here. And for more on that, of course, I'll direct you to the Kelly Vallejo's article, but Kelly also appeared on the Scott Horton Show last month to talk about this article. Uh, very happy to have you here and to talk about these important subjects. Um, civilian control of the military. Um, and this is, I guess, uh, your premise here. You talk about seven days in May. I hope everybody's seen that. Um, <laughs> And I get, if I remember right, you kind of question here whether we even need a coup anymore. We got an entire cabinet full of generals. What do you think? Well, you know, I think there's there there are arguments on both sides of the issue. I've I've talked to people who are um, not you know readily Clinton supporters or Democrats or progressives or even anti-war advocates at all who are still concerned um, with the number of generals that. That Trump has, they're not generals, but retired generals who have retired recently. Uh, the, the the number of them who, who he he's tapped, you know, since be becoming uh, since he won the election. Their concern is that when you're you're reaching out to only military people, they're they're only looking at problems and solutions through. A military lens, and with military training, you have a you know your 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 mission. The mission is to to um, either to win, subdue, or kill. You know, and uh, whereas maybe outside uh, that civilian or the military scope, civilians are more trained in negotiation and different strategies for building alliances and 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 and, and just resolving problems. So their concern was, you know, on a number of levels, you know, that 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 ideological level and also a constitutional level. You know, it should we be giving waivers um, to to retired generals like General Mattis, who 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 is more recently retired, um, just to have him serve? Um, will it create a crisis at some point where you have uh, generals who might have? Um, you know, I would say more control, um, more influence at the levers of power, um, you know, uh, over their civilian count counterparts, and at some point become more of an arm of of the president, of the executive power, where, you know, he would be able to use them and use their, their influence in terms of getting his particular agenda pushed through. And this is this is what the founding fathers had been concerned about 
when they, you know, when the the, the Constitution was drafted, that you have the separation uh, so that you don't have um, a military junta, so to speak, take over and, you know, go through history in terms of why those concerns were apparent at the time. Um, but, you know, a lot of these things were raised when I started asking, you know, military people, historians, you know, conservatives, you know, the question of whether, you know, Trump was going in the right direction. And uh, there seemed to be some skepticism and concern. All right. So Kelly Vlahos talked to some former military officers and these namby-pambies got all scared about the prospect of military control over civilian agencies and national security posts. I mean, what's going to happen? It's not like anyone's talking about reviving old kill and capture programs that were developed in Vietnam and used as the basis for the Department of Homeland Security, right? A Phoenix-like program. Okay, Remember, the Phoenix program was a root canal done. You mean Phoenix, this is the Phoenix program? This is the Phoenix, hang on, this is the Phoenix program in Vietnam. It was a vicious but very effective kill capture program in Vietnam that destroyed the Viet Cong as a military force. That's what needs to be done to the funders of Islamic terror, and that would be even the, the wealthy, radical, Islamist billionaires uh, funding it from the Middle East. Um, and any of the other illicit activities they're in. Oh, right. That's exactly what's happening. Yes, for those of you who don't know, that was Eric Prince, the founder of Blackwater. Yes, that Blackwater, who has emerged in recent months to become associated with the Trump campaign. And although uh, the official linkage isn't there. He doesn't have official post in the Trump White House. The inside reports uh, that I will link to in the show notes, so you could go check them out, are that Trump, uh, Eric Prince does have the ear of the president and is advising him on military matters. And there you go. That's the type of thing he's going to be advising. Hey, we need to revive the Phoenix program to take care of ISIS. The ISIS fighters that the U.S. and their allies funded and created and stirred up. But anyway... So what is the Phoenix Program? Well, if you've never heard about it, the best resource to go to would be the Phoenix Program by Douglas Valentine, which is a lengthy and hefty treatise on the Phoenix Program and what it entailed, uh, which was a program that was developed in Vietnam, but as Douglas Valentine forcefully argues in this and his other work, uh, it certainly did not end in Vietnam. And... It's difficult to synopsize something that takes hundreds of pages to write about in all of its detail, but as something of a synopsis, it created it was a program that created these blacklists of people who were suspected or just, you know, people that they didn't like, but people who they were suspected officially of collaborating with uh, people in the north, the, the commies. Uh, and from these blacklists, uh, as, it, as he writes in his book, South Vietnamese civilians whose names appeared on black blacklists could be kidnapped, tortured, detained for two years without trial, or even murdered, simply on the word of an anonymous informer. At its height, Phoenix managers imposed quotas of 1,800 neutralizations per month on the people running the program in the field, opening up the program to abuses by corrupt security officers, policemen, politicians, and racketeers, all of whom extorted innocent civilians as well as VCI. And he goes on to write, uh, Phoenix was, among other things, an instrument of counter-terror, the psychological warfare tactic in which VCI members were brutally murdered along with their families or neighbors as a means of terrorizing the neighboring population into a state of submission. Such horrendous acts were, 
for propaganda purposes, often made to look as if they had been committed by the enemy. So, yes, committing false flag terror to blame on the enemy as part of a psychological operation aimed at whoever you decide is your enemy this week, well, that sounds like par for the course for the national security establishment. So Eric Prince, who has the ear of the president talking about reviving the Phoenix program, should be scary enough... If it were not for the fact that I alluded to earlier that the Phoenix program eventually did go on to be one of the the founding ideas and the template upon which the Department of Homeland Security and its fusion centers were based. Yes, it continues to get more and more horrifying. And the idea of openly talking about revivifying the program is, is worrying because, of course, it's been going on and been being used for all of this inter- intervening time, but now they're openly coming out and saying, hey, Americans, guess what? We're going to start reviving the Phoenix program and well, coming to a fusion center near you. Well, it's, as I say, difficult to talk about all of the facets of the Phoenix program and why it is so worrying to hear people so highly connected talking about this in this new Trump era. But in order to at least broach the conversation earlier this month, uh, sorry, late last month, I talked to Douglas Valentine about the Phoenix program and about what it means and how it really does have relevance for Americans even living today in 21st century America. The Phoenix program emerged from the South Vietnam as, as uh, from the, the Vietnam War as sort of the silver line. It had been so perfected there that it became a model for um, the, C, the not just the CIA, but the military got with it and uh, uh, Congress and uh, all the other the Department of Justice. Every, all, you know, our ruling political elite saw that, that this Phoenix methodology was the way the empire would police the world. And even though it hadn't worked in South Vietnam for a number of reasons that were specific to that culture, it's been perfected in the 40 years since then. And it was initially applied, immediately applied by people who worked in the Phoenix, CIA officers in the Phoenix program in El Salvador and Nicaragua and Central America, where it was thought to be very successful. And people began writing, um, uh, military people who worked in the Phoenix program, uh, CIA people, all began writing papers about the future applicability of the Phoenix program. It's a, it's a system, a really broad system. And um, oh, uh, I quote this guy in my new book. Uh, it's sort of the you know, um, preface quote, guy named uh, Gal Tong. And uh, uh, he's the one that said, um, personal violence in domination is the tool of the amateur. Professionals use social and political structures. And these systems, the system of a, of a general staff for pacification, which was set up by this guy, Nelson Brickham, back in 1966-67, has become the systematized way of repressing dissent, not just in uh, countries that the United States occupies. I mean, the Phoenix people ended up in Iraq. Phoenix people ended up in, in Afghanistan. They're, they're spread all around the world. The CIA has... Uh, uh, applied it, this Phoenix intelligence operations and coordinating model. It, it's actually integrated in it, it, it in how it's actually itself structured. They created the CIA back uh, two years ago. Created 
uh, 10 of these Phoenix-type centers, which it now has spread around the world. And not only that, the Department of Homeland Security has set up what's called fusion centers here in the United States. Again, one in each state. Each state has a fusion center, just like each province in South Vietnam had a, a Phoenix intelligence operations and coordinating center. And these fusion centers operate exactly the way the Phoenix centers do. And and as dissent builds, the spirit of dissent builds in, a, in the United States under the reactionary Trump regime, which, which is rolling back uh, civil rights and um, uh, really starting to upset a lot of people in a lot of ways as we enter an era of dissent, these uh, fusion centers um, will become the forefront in fighting dissent. And they're going to work the same way that the Phoenix centers did. And the scary thing um, about a guy like Eric Prince and calling for uh, uh, Phoenix operations uh, directed against ISIS is that it just doesn't it, it doesn't just stop with ISIS. And what is ISIS? And and if it proves somewhat effective there, then you have a system in place. What's to stop it from spreading like wildfire everywhere? And it's like um, it's like the camel putting its tent its nose in the tent. You know the old adage. Pretty soon the whole body was in. You know, and um, uh, with uh, um, uh, Trump uh, uh, resurrecting torture, you know, which which also has uh, an effect of implicit term uh, as well as explicit. Uh, with the militarization of the police forces in the United States, that again is implicit terror. The citizens of the United States know that all those guns can be used against them. They don't have to be used against them, but they see rocket launchers at, at Standing Rock. They, they, they're not using them against us right now, but they, th there's a terror there that you know that they can be. And under a guy like Trump, they will be. Um, all this, all this, these the subtle uh, hints that Trump is sending, this is all implicit terror, and it's used to psychologically suppress dissent in the United States. And that that is what the Phoenix program is all about. It's this idea of psychologically affecting people, and 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 that's the biggest part of it. But the the scary thing with a guy like Prince and and him, you know, it's no mistake that. Uh, he entered the news and that the Trump administration um, uh, allowed it to leak that he, that he is, you know, um, uh, advising them and that he's looking forward to to instituting this kind of a Phoenix program worldwide. Uh, uh, one of the major systems of the Phoenix program are these private militias, which are ideologically aligned. In, a in the sense of being mercenaries operating domestically or internationally with the political the current political Trump administration. They have ties to the military, they have ties to the police, and in an emergency, the Department of Homeland Security can reach out to these people. So, so without understanding the broad sweep and scope of what the Phoenix program truly is, people could think, well, the government is doing this for our protection. But actually, unless you understand the psychological warfare part of it, the implicit 
terrorism part of it, how, how Phoenix coordinates systems across the board. Uh, uh, for example, and then most particularly the Department of Justice, which under the Obama administration has gotten to the point where dissent now is created with terror, is equalized with terrorism. American citizens can now be detained and put in interrogation centers under uh, national directive, uh, national um, defense uh, authorization. Yeah, yeah, under uh, executive orders that, that Obama put in place. Well, guess what, folks? You have no more right to due process. So this is this is the the elaborate, systemized form of uh, repression that um, uh, uh, Eric Prince is signaling on behalf of the Trump administration when he starts talking about uh, the institutionalization of a Phoenix program. And, and anybody who interprets it narrowly or any different than that is pulling the wool over your eyes. This is a massive um, first step in suppressing dissent in the United States. Douglas Valentine of DouglasValentine.com. Now, at this point, you would be forgiven for asking the question, perhaps rhetorically, are there any campaign promises that candidate Trump made that he's actually going to follow through on? And the answer is yes. He's going to follow through on at least one important campaign promise. Make Israel great again. Thank you very much. I speak to you today as a lifelong supporter and true friend of Israel. I'm a newcomer to politics, but not to backing the Jewish state. In 2001, weeks after the attacks on New York City and on Washington, and frankly, the attacks on all of us, attacks that perpetrated, and they were perpetrated, by the Islamic fundamentalists. Mayor Rudy Giuliani visited Israel to show solidarity with terror victims. I sent my plane because I backed the mission for Israel 100%. My name is Donald Trump, and I'm a big fan of Israel. And frankly, a strong prime minister is a strong Israel. And you truly have a great prime minister. In Benjamin Netanyahu, there's nobody like him. He's a winner. He's highly respected. He's highly thought of by all. Palestinian leaders have slammed the U.S. Republican presidential candidate for saying that he will recognize Jerusalem outlets as, quote, Israel's undivided capital if elected. The Palestinian foreign ministry issued a statement criticizing Donald Trump, as well as his Democratic rival Hillary Clinton, for overly favoring the Israelis at the expense of Palestinians. Meanwhile, the Secretary General of the Palestine Liberation Organization, Saab Arakat, added that Trump's statements showed disregard for international law. In a meeting with the Israeli Prime Minister on Sunday, Trump pledged to recognize Israel's claim over East Jerusalem outlets if he is elected. Well, as I say, that is one part of candidate Trump's rhetoric that we know he's going to follow through on based on the choices that he's already made. For example, of course, his appointment of David Friedman, bankruptcy lawyer, to be the next ambassador to Israel. And 
you don't have to go very far. You don't even have to stretch out into the crazy conspiracy realm. You can take it from pretty mainstream sources just how out there David Friedman is on anything approaching the Israeli issue. Uh, For example, this article was posted up on informationclearinghouse.info last month. Uh, Trump's ambassador makes Netanyahu look like a J Street lefty. Quote, By Israeli standards, Donald Trump's designated ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, is an extreme right-winger. Friedman has expressed opinions that are considered radical even in today's more right-wing Israel. He opposes a two-state solution, supports settlements, and advocates annexation, has denigrated President Obama as an anti-Semite, questioned the citizenship of Israeli Arabs, compared J Street to Holocaust-era capos, and so on. It's good he'll be coming with diplomatic immunity. For some of his articles and statements, Friedman could get arrested by the Israeli police on suspicion of incitement. Friedman's appointment would seem to confirm Bennett's initial jubilation following Trump's election. This is not an ambassador that a rational U.S. administration would send if it had any plans whatsoever to advance the peace process. This is an ambassador who will please evangelicals, delight Jewish settlers, and bring pleasure to land of Israel zealots far and wide. In many ways, Friedman will seem like a turbocharged Ron Dermer, courting the extreme right in in his host country while shunning all the rest. It will upset many Israelis, including possibly Netanyahu himself. The Prime Minister is always more concerned more about his right-wing flanks than his opposition on the left. The last thing he needs is a U.S. ambassador who supports his most feared rivals. End quote. An interesting take, and again, you can read through the rest of that article for more on it, but perhaps one of the most blatant and and worrying things is uh, Friedman's musing of moving the U.S. embassy uh, to Jerusalem and claiming Jerusalem is all Israel's, no Palestine involved there. So uh, not just upsetting the balance of uh, the whatever tenuous status quo has existed, but completely trying to tip the table over and basically exterminate Palestine and Palestinian people from the map. Pretty worrying, uh, you would you would not be forgiven for, for, for believing, but it gets even worse because uh, it, it's not just his ambassador appointment. It's also the person that he's going to appoint uh, to head the Israeli settler slash uh, uh, the Israel-Palestine peace process, uh, Jason Greenblatt, again, who seems to have no qualifications for this position other than being a real estate lawyer who's represented Donald Trump's business uh, and the Trump organization since 1997. So... You know, of course, a little bit of uh, nepotism and backslapping going on, but it's made even worse again by the fact of what Green, who Greenblatt is and what he believes. Uh, taking this from Mondo Weiss, which had this article up in December, Greenblatt is another staunchly pro-Israel voice joining the president-elect's administration, and according to the Ford, may be the first leading advisor on Israel to a U.S. president that's done guard duty at a Jewish settlement in the occupied West Bank while armed with an M16 assault weapon. While Greenblatt supports a two-state solution, he believes that the withdrawal from Gaza was the forerunner to the rise of Hamas, as well as the following wars. The real estate attorney who will become America's leading man on Israel once studied at a religious school in the West Bank settlement of Alan Shuvat and is the author of a tourist guide on family holidays in Israel. And again, as, as Forward points out, like all students at the yeshiva, he did occasional armed guard duty in the West Bank. So a man who was 
carrying an M16 and uh, is now apparently the man who's going to be in charge of the peace process and deciding how the settlement uh, issue should be decided. Uh, Well, again, we know which side of this issue Trump is on, and his appointments bear that out in spades. So consider that, I suppose, a promise made and kept. Well, there you go. Uh, It's not necessarily uh, going to bode well for, well, certainly not for Palestinians or people interested in peace in the Middle East. But... Is there any bright ray of hope we can find? Maybe we can turn to the Injustice Department. I mean, surely anything will be better than the Holder era, where, of course, no banksters were prosecuted. Well, okay, so no banksters will be prosecuted under Trump either. But what about what about just justice in general? Maybe Maybe someone can be appointed to flip all of this police state craziness that's been brought in by Bush and hyped up under... Obama, maybe someone can finally put the brakes on it, like Jeff Sessions as attorney attorney general. Hmm. What do we know about Jeff Sessions? Well, let's turn to a, an important article that I will direct your attention to. It was posted up on activistpost.com last month by uh, Derek Bros. It's called President Trump's Attorney General Will Continue the Surveillance State. And in this article, which is well-documented, I hope, I hope you'll go through it and read through it, he uh, bros outlines uh, Sessions' proclivity for the war on drugs and uh, his advocacy of the surveillance state, including the stingrays, uh, the cell phone simulators that the police are using more and more these days. Uh, he talks about uh, Sessions' uh, proposed war on encryption and also his proclivity to go after whistleblowers and journalists by calling them uh, leaders of unlawful information. Unlawful information. Scary words to be bandied about by an attorney general, but there you go. So, as you will have noticed just earlier this week, I had the chance to talk to Derek Bros about Jeff Sessions as attorney general. Let's back up for a second and go over some of these points. So, for example, sure. on encryption, um, there's a post up on EFF.org, uh, Attorney General nominee Sessions backs crypto backdoors, which notes that in the written response to the question submitted by Senator Leahy to Sessions for his uh, confirmation, uh, Leahy asks the question, do you agree with NSA Director Rogers, Secretary of Defense Carter, and other national security experts that strong encryption helps protect this country from cyber attack and is beneficial to the uh, American people's digital security. I mean, it's a it's a meaningless question, but it's a no-brainer. Yes, I agree, would mm-hmm. be the answer. However, the answer that, uh, that Sessions gives is, encryption serves many valuable and important purposes. It is also critical, however, that national security and criminal investigators be able to overcome encryption under lawful authority when necessary to the furtherance of national security and criminal investigations. Now, those words coming from the newly confirmed uh, Attorney General should send shivers down the spine of anyone who's listening to this conversation, but for the heart of thinking... Can you spell out what is so bad about giving the the government backdoor is to uh, to encryption uh, technologies? Absolutely. So first off, you really got to listen to what he said. I think he said at least two, maybe three times in there, national security, which has been the uh, you know the catch-all phrase that's been used. The Obama administration, the Bush administration, the Clinton administration, Bush administration, go back, back, back. National security is the excuse for nearly everything in the same way that 9-11 is the 24-7 excuse for everything. Uh, they say that whenever they want to do something. And they, they're they trying to, I believe, invoke this um, 
this feeling in the public, oh, it's national interest. Well, I'm a part of this nation. I'm a part of this community. I'm a part of the government. This is me, right? So it's for my security. I should you know, let them do this. And especially to those who are supporting Trump, who seem to have taken up more of a nationalist kind of outlook. Um, and I know that some people are taking this outlook because they're like, well, nationalism is better than globalism. But that sort of appeal to nationalism or to the nation state is a very easy, as we're seeing, emotional a heartstring to tug and to pull and to play people with. So all you have to do is really feel, get them to identify and feel like, oh, this is going to be good for your country, for America, make America great again. And they're willing to go along with it. So I feel like this appeal to national security is probably a part of that. Uh, in addition to that, when he says, you know, he mentions the legality of it. So what he's, he's saying is that we need to change the laws to make it legal for us to crack encryption and to get in there. Right now, there's probably some slight legal barriers. They're doing it already, right? But they want it to get it on the books. This is how things have changed uh, for the past administrations. They do it uh, for as long as they can until there's enough public backlash where it becomes right. public information. And, 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 and again, this they, isn't they, theoretical. They this isn't theoretical because this was exactly the issue, for example, in the, the San Bernardino iPhone saga where they wanted to unlock that, that phone. What what did they find in there? Oh, right. Nothing of import that ever got reported. But there was this whole legal saga about it. Can the government force Apple to unlock that phone? Yeah. And uh, at the time, what did candidate Trump said? He said, quote, to think that Apple won't allow us to get into that cell phone. Who do they think they are? No, <laughs> we have to open it up. Again, this is now the president of the United States. Yeah, absolutely. That should, again, it should set, uh, be a red flag and, and, and tell people that this is not somebody who's supporting freedom. And the interesting aspect of that, you think that, okay, Trump is a businessman. Would he really be okay if the government came to him and said, hey, we need you to open up Trump Towers and show us something in there? Like, no, he would be fighting them the, the entire way and his supporters would cheer him on. They'd be, yeah, Trump's taking on the government. But now if it's reversed and he says, hey, you know what, we need to be able to get in there. And, and, and the, the Apple thing, the iPhone, it set a precedent now. Now the FBI has been able to get into people's phones. So they have a point to reference to say, well, we did it before and they let us do it then. So that's how these things happen. They, they, they get away with it for as long as they can and they bring it to your attention and then they get the public to support it and then they codify it into law. Well, they stopped right at the doorstep of codifying that into law because they found a, another way in. They found a company yeah. that would help them break into the iPhone so they didn't have to force Apple to do it. But they were on the precipice of setting that legal precedent. And now we know that Trump and his attorney general would be more than happy to set that legal precedent when and if it comes up again. And of course, the whole point of this is even if Sessions and Trump and everyone in the administration is a total angel sent from heaven to look after the public and their interests, the point is if you create back doors for the government, well, guess what? Any criminal can find those back doors yeah. as well. It, it, it is purposefully weakening the security yeah. of the systems. It is insanity. Derek Bros of theconsciousresistance.com. All right. Do we really need to go on? Do we need to go over every single appointee to the cabinet? I think you get the idea. Although I'm sure there is more research to be done and more of these swamp dwellers can be identified and tagged as such by intrepid researchers. And I hope you do so and continue this investigation. But I think the point is made. The point being that this is a swamp. It may be slightly different. There may be different people populating that swamp or different swamp dwellers dwelling in that swamp, but there's still a swamp. So drain one swamp, fill another. Uh, if you understand this premise, there are some 
reasons not for optimism. I don't know if that's quite the right word, but at least reasons why this isn't the end of the world. Because let's go back to our initial understanding, the one that we came to long ago, many, many, many presidencies ago, but that we could point, for example, in the Obama era and say, look, he was just a puppet master for his puppeteers who were telling him to fill the swamp this way or that, and maybe we'll find in a few years or a few decades or whenever it eventually comes out who was telling Trump to fill his swamp with what people, or maybe it never will. Maybe this really is Trump deciding to fill his swamp with these swamp creatures, which, you know, maybe that's true. Trump has dwelled dwelled in the swamp of the uh, New York business world as a billionaire for decades, I'm sure, he just hangs out with the swamp, so it's not surprising that he would want to surround himself with swamp dwellers. But again, the point is, it's the people who are really in these positions of power, and the people who are directing them, that are the the core of this issue. This isn't about Donald J. Trump. This isn't about any individual. This is about the system itself, which, in a way, is empowering to individuals who maybe have gotten caught up in the distraction of the political facade of all of this and forgotten the base root of all of this. So let's attack this issue from a couple of different perspectives. Uh, The first article I'm going to point you to is one called Dear Non-Anarchists, and it was posted up to the Center for Stateless Society on January 30th of 2017. In the context of this recent executive order about terrorist entry, the Muslim ban so-called, whatever you think about that executive order, it's not important. This article is talking about the way it was implemented and the way that uh, DHS officials and and police uh, officers were enforcing this executive order uh, despite court bans and despite what was going on, uh, uh, despite all the court orders that were coming down, uh, saying you'll have to ask Mr. Trump um, when in their blind obedience to fulfill whatever orders they had been told to fulfill. Uh, Very worrying, no matter what your perspective is on any given executive order, people who are just blindly following orders, even in contravention to the checks and balances of the court, is quite worrying. So in that context, the C4SS just put out this article, Dear Non-Anarchists, which reads in part, quote, Power is built on force. And while the crude measure of the Second Amendment at least recognizes this, the self-disarmament of liberals and the ideological capture of many armed libertarians by white identity politics and authoritarian national collectivism have together opened a window that Bannon is exploiting. You allowed an institution of incredible power to be formed and to grow, and those at its helm have finally realized they don't need to obey the rules or the norms you tacked onto it. They may yet be proven wrong in this instance. The variables may yet come out against them. But at this point, it's clearly a matter of chance. Please remember this. If you want real checks and balances, then abolish positions of power like the presidency and dissolve centralized organizations with monopolistic control over means of violence. Instead of three branches of government in the U.S., why not 300 million? Each of us individually taking responsibility for holding others in check, distributedly collaborating in ever-vigilance to stop the emergence of thugs, cops, and warlords, politicians. We might yet get through this crisis in some form or another, and despite this brief bit of we-told-you-so, lecturing anarchists have your back in any substantive resistance you wish to undertake against tyranny, but please learn some lessons from this situation. End quote. Now, again, I think 
regardless of the context, that this is absolutely the core of the issue. Again, we can look at the swamp and figure out, oh, it's the same old swamp creatures, but that isn't the end of the story. The story is, it's a swamp because that's what it is. That's what the White House is. That's what these positions of power are. They are swamps, and they are going to be populated by swamp dwellers. It will never be different. You will never elect someone who will not fill that swamp with anything other than swamp water and swamp dwellers. So stop trying. And how do you do that? Let's take a look at another post. This one was um, tweeted out by uh, Tony Cardellucci of Land Destroyer Report, who we've mentioned on this program many times. He has a very simple post that I think is uh, very important. So let's read it. It's called Politics Hasn't and Will Never Solve This. What will? Politics hasn't and will never solve this. What will? Take the organic agriculture movement, for example. Organic agriculture has put big ag against the wall because people are simply withdrawing from the system and buying from their community, growing for their community, and in some cases, not paying taxes or following the criminal laws and regulations used to keep people from starting their own businesses and escaping out from under the establishment's monopolies. Yes, there are protests and campaigns to educate people, but primarily there are people making organic agriculture accessible to regular people building communities, doing real, physical work, business, up around organic, and drawing people into this tangible, practical movement. Take that, apply it to every other industry and aspect the system currently dominates at every opportunity, and that will change things. Politics is what people do when they have no real solution to any given problem, which is why politicians are famous for talking, but doing nothing. End quote. Well, doing things, but not doing anything of substance. Nothing that helps you or me. Just things that get political football points or get the uh, political football further down the field. Well, the end zone is tyranny, and we're moving there yard by yard. And every, no matter which team is moving the ball, it's moving it towards the same end zone. So, that is the political game that they want you to play. And the only way to win that game is not to play it is not to invest your time, your energy, or your identity focused on the swamp. Don't expect anything but swamp dwellers to exist in the swamp. What we have to do is start creating non-swamp space, or reclaiming the swamp space, making it into our own. And I think Tony Cardellucci has gestured at one very specific example there that we've talked about on this program before. For example, in our Solutions episode on uh, guerrilla gardening. But there are many, many other examples. I invite you to type the word solutions into the search bar of CorbettReport.com and look at the different ways that individuals working together in communities can act in ways that impact your life directly without having to go to some savior on high to save you from the swamp creatures who are dwelling in the swamp that you give all your time, energy, attention, and money to. That's the real problem, and I think that's the real way to divert ourselves from this endless, endless roller coaster they have us on of Bush, Obama, Trump, whoever's next... It's the same thing because all they are are puppets for the puppet masters who are filling the swamp exactly as they've been told. Trump is no different. Well, that's uh, a lot to leave things on, but it's an important point to make, especially at this juncture, before people get sucked into the political football game and get too far down the field, uh, because we don't have a lot of time left in that game. On that note, I'm going to leave you there for now, but there are plenty of resources in the show notes. Please do check them out. 
I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again real soon. The Corbett Report is brought to you by you. Your support makes The Corbett Report possible. Sign up for the subscriber newsletter or purchase a DVD at CorbettReport.com support. You know, when I first heard that term, I hated it. I said, oh, that's so hokey. That is so hokey. But I said, look, let's give it a shot. I tried it. The place went crazy. Then I said, maybe we'll try it again. The place went crazy. And now I like it.